I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning The Baddest Dad and The Raddest Dad of Them All. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Well said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so different from every other week. Um, we're in the middle of just so many things right now. Um, I've just started the Edmonton International Film Festival. We're doing that. We have a very special new series that we have yet to name that will have a special episode coming out. So you can look forward to that amongst many other things. I can't even keep track of all the things we're doing, but we're cool as shit and we're doing cool as shit things. So busy, busy, all to do with movies. But let's talk about these movies that aren't a part of IFE or a special new series that we have yet to name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We did a lot of theater watching at the start of the week um, and we went and saw the 1956 Stanley Kubrick film. Ah, QB. The Killing. It is a crime drama film noir. And it was, as I said, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it was written by him and Jim Thompson based on the novel by Lionel White. It stars a lot of people. And I just picked a few. But Wikipedia and IMDb and Letterboxd are great if you want to see the whole cast. <laughs> um, so I picked out Sterling Hayden as Johnny Clay. Colleen Gray as Faye. Vince Edwards as Val Cannon. Mary Windsor as Sherry Peaty and Alicia Cook Jr. or Elisha Cook Jr. as George Peaty. Synopsis. Crook Johnny Clay assembles a five-man team to plan and execute a daring racetrack robbery. What did you think of the killing? I was looking forward to this because this is a, an era of Kubrick I'm less familiar with, but am interested in. I also think an era of film that we're less familiar with. We haven't gone into the fifties too much. And when we have, it seems to be because of a director that we liked his work in the sixties, like a Hitchcock or a Kubrick. Yeah. Or it's like a very famous film and we're like, okay, we'll give the fifties a chance. Yeah. 12 angry men. Yeah, sure. We're in, but, um, this felt a little dusty for the most of it. It wasn't, it wasn't grabbing me. Uh, it didn't help that our theater was also filled with smoke from the wildfires that are 
happening everywhere right now because everything's on fire. But it does have some signature Q- <laughs> Kubrick. Kubrick. How do you say his name? <laughs> Kubrick. <laughs> oh my God. Kubrick. Lost all meaning. Brick. Kubrick. Like a dove and then a brick. Ooh, brick. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, it's a little trick there. Uh, it has a lot of Kubrick isms in terms of lighting, composition, and even some of the tongue in cheek humor that he brings into the fold. And that stuff works for me. I'm like, ooh, this is very Doctor Strange love. Ooh, this is actually kind of The Shining slash 2001 ish. I guess that's just the more the stuff I am more familiar with. I could see where that where he was crafting that and where his eye just always was as a filmmaker, which is cool. Yeah, it's such an interesting exercise to be quite familiar with an artist's work, but maybe not their very early work where they are experimenting and developing voice and all of that and watching this and asking myself what is and is not Kubrickian was really interesting Um, because from everything I've read about it, it was considered like really innovative at the time Um, in a similar way. Actually, it seems to Citizen Kane, not to the same known level, I think, but I read a reviewer who talked about it as like, pushing film in a direction that hasn't been done since Wells. Mm. Um, And that's so fascinating to see because it would be a totally different exercise to see that first and then watch his later films. Right. Yeah. Um, And I believe I talked last week about that book that I read that talked about artists who become masters and you can see how each work they do is pushing into the next work. Yeah. And I really do feel after watching this that, well, it as a whole maybe not be, maybe might not be our jam. And I don't necessarily think that's even because of the time. I think for me, I'm just not that into film noir. Yeah. Like that's just not my genre. I don't really care about the femme fatale and the hard boiled detective. And it's like, honestly, yes, I get that Nick Cage is funny, but that character in spider versus my least, no, Let's be honest. The stupid pig is my least favorite. <laughs> but yeah, film noir has just, film noir has just never really appealed to me. Um, but if you were to watch his films in order, I think you would see that masterful work of this film is pushing into the next film, is pushing into the next film, is pushing into the next film. Even when you look at like Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, there's continual innovation amongst like all of the work he's doing, and I put those not in the right chronological order. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's really cool to look at, and I agree with you. There was some really incredible lighting. I thought for, you know, now we're starting to watch some more films from the 1950s, there was some really innovative framing techniques Mm -hmm. and, like, panning, like, through rooms in a way that I don't think was that common. Like, even thinking about how we recently watched Rope. Yes, Rope did a great job at the, like, one take. But outside of that one take, it wasn't doing much else interesting in terms of framing. Yeah, but I would argue that there is some interesting, innovative camera work still happening oh, for within sure. Rope. Yeah. And I think that that's where the comparison for with Kubrick and Hitchcock and filmmakers alike is that they are actively wanting to innovate when it comes to using the camera. Yeah. And you see how that pushed the medium forward. Yeah. Right. 
Then the interesting thing as well, when you're looking at an artist who's in their early stages and it's some of their first like commercial work is they often don't have the same creative control they'll later have. So I was reading about how, you know, test audiences weren't liking the film and the film is, I mean, the internet claims it's nonlinear. I didn't totally get that. So maybe I'm dumb. I didn't even consider it wouldn't be nonlinear. Well, I okay. I mean, we are jumping around a bit, I guess. Like one thing is happening and then we're going back to see like what's happening at the same time and then what's happening. So maybe it's I mean, sure. nonlinear, but it is chronological. Yeah, that, that's it. Because I usually think of nonlinear as like it's not in the time order, but perhaps it's more of that like we're bouncing amongst people and it's not perfect. But anyway, I guess that test audiences didn't like that. And so the studio wanted him to make it linear and he did, but then they didn't like it any better. So he got to put it back to being nonlinear. Um, but one of the things that he was made to do that he really didn't want to was have a narrator. And honestly, I thought the narration was some of the worst part of it. Yeah. Like that made it feel dusty when it was like, and then he walked out of the bus station. Yeah. That you was know? really, that really did not add anything. It's kind of like the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner had Deckard narrating it and it added nothing. So I think if you rewatch the film, so I was reading that he was forced to have a narrator and he really didn't want to. So he had the narrator be unreliable. Like the narrator gets information wrong. And I think maybe mm. we just didn't catch that on a first viewing, but on a second viewing, that might be kind of funny that I, like the narrator himself is a, when we hear a narrator, they're meant often meant to be, especially in like a, film from the 50s 40s like I think it's a wonderful life you know like this omniscient narrator who knows everything and then if you have the filmmaker having the narrator be incorrect that is something interesting yeah like I as an approach to creativity especially in my line of work and advertising you're answering to a lot of people and you're getting a lot of feedback that you have to take into account that you don't always like but I like that he was given feedback that he didn't agree with but he's like you know what fuck you, I'm going to make it my own and do something with it that you probably won't like, but I think it's going to enhance the film if it has to be there. If it has to be there, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff in there. I agree with you. For a lot of the film, I was like, this isn't totally grabbing me, but then we need to talk about the ending without talking about the ending because I loved the ending. Like, yeah. the whole ride was worth it yeah. for, like, the last 10 minutes. And that's what I'll say is, like, I said that it didn't really hook me like I wasn't super engaged throughout, but you know, I'm, I'm there. I'm with it. As soon as it like kind of started to turn like full oceans 11 and yes. <laughs> I was immediately more interested and the ending, I'll never forget the ending because it's so good as such a great last line of the film and things that happen, especially just in the last sequence is pitch perfect. Yeah. It's because the character of Johnny is like, he's such a fuck boy the whole movie. Yes. And yeah, just to like see where his characters go, where his character goes. And then it's an yeah. incredibly satisfying narrative conclusion. And despite the fact that for a lot of the film, I was just like, OK, I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't obsessed with it. Despite that, because of the ending, I actually would encourage a lot of the people in my life to watch this at least once. Yeah, because that ending is honestly one of the best endings I've ever seen. And the movie's not long. So I actually could see myself rewatching it and I'd be curious on a second watch when I 
know that it's more film noir and I know the ending if I might be even more able to see like the Kubrickian elements because I'm able to focus on that instead of the narrative. Hmm. Um, but I probably wouldn't watch it all the time. Yeah. I'm in hundred percent the same, boat but it's as you. A, just an amazing ending. Yeah. How did the killing make you feel? A bit bored at first, but ultimately tickled by its memorable conclusion. How'd it make you feel? Caught up in the complicated crime and obsessed with the ending. Truly one of the great endings of all time. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay, we went out back up to the theater, same day as the killing, and we went, we went to see the 2023 drama, Fremont. I would say drama slash comedy. Yeah, very strange to me that it doesn't have comedy in the yeah. descriptor. Uh, it was directed by Babak Jal, Jal Ali and written by Carolina Cavalli, uh, as well as Babak Jal Ali. It stars Nada Walizada as Danya, Jeremy Yeshef, Alan White, as Daniel, Greg Turkington as Dr. Anthony, and Hilda Schmeling as Joanna. Synopsis. Danya works for a Chinese fortune cookie factory, a profession I have not seen on film before. Formerly a translator for the U.S. military, she struggles to put her life back in order. In a moment of sudden revelation, she decides to send out a special message in a cookie. What do you think of Fremont? I was really excited for this one. Sometimes we don't make it out as often as I'd like to the smaller new release indie films that Metro does such a great job of having in their programming because we're often there so much for the little shop of horrors and the, you know, uh, curated program that programming that they do where we were trying to see everything in a series that we need a night off. And those are the films we tend to not go to. And so we sometimes kind of look at what are all of the like 2023 or sometimes even 2022, like films in the last year or two that they're doing a handful of showings of and which ones do we want to prioritize? And we definitely do try and prioritize either filmmakers or actors that we're familiar with and like, or filmmakers and actors that aren't from voices that we see in film as often. So making a point to go see shortcomings and making a point to go see this. We really wanted to go see Love Life and Piaf, but we were just tired. (laughs) So we didn't. But we, you know, you in particular were like, I really want to see this one. Mm -hmm. Um, When we saw a trailer for it, the style of it felt very up our alley, like very um, aesthetically intentional and then very dry in its humor and how it uses that dry humor to also look at like human emotion and human experience. And it was that to a T and Mm -hmm. I really liked it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Same. Uh, That's exactly where I'm at. Like I, I was looking to have that dry witty sense of humor and cool aesthetic. And once it was delivering on that, I was so in and it's, it's so gorgeous and there's some real beautiful introspective acting from Anita Walizada. Yeah, I haven't seen her in anything and she's just stunning in this. Like the film is very quiet and it's mostly her. Like you see the trailer and you see Jeremy Allen White in the trailer and he's 
you know, becoming a big name, I would say, mm-hmm. or a bigger name. He's really not in the film very much at all. So much of it is just her. And she commands the screen, but not in a loud way. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would love to see her in other things because I thought she was just incredible in this. Yeah. And what she needs to convey and what the film itself conveys is just this very human, very relatable, being content with routine and place and then searching for or taking something up on the little opportunities to break out of these routines or break out of a place that you're in. And it, the film does such a good job of setting up the monotony of everyday life and how you, how these little shakeups will shake up our narrative with Danya. Yeah. This felt like a lineage of film that Amelie would belong to. Mm. And yet much softer and quieter Mm -hmm. than Anomaly. And what I really liked about this film is I feel like, like you said, it's, it's looking at like monotony and I think maybe even more specifically like the monotony of loneliness. Yeah. It feels like a film about loneliness and about disconnect and feeling kind of anchorless. And I feel like what Jalali does so beautifully is use film technique to demonstrate that in subtle ways. You know, he uses the aspect ratio and I'm, yes, having that box aspect ratio is cool. Yeah. But I'm always thinking about, especially as someone who teaches film to my high school students, well, what's the purpose behind it? And is there an effect? Is it doing something for me? And I think here it shows that, feeling of being boxed in that feeling of being stuck in a routine and trying to get out of that. And I think the black and white again, black and white looks cool, mm-hmm. but what's the point of it? I think to show how lonely she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you in particular, when we uh, were driving home and we went to see it with a couple of friends, you talked about how you thought silence was used so purposefully and beautifully and brilliantly. And I think the saddest moments of the film And they're so real and they're so mundane in the sadness, so relatable, Mm -hmm. are in the silences. Um, And it just uses all of the tools at a filmmaker's disposal in non-flashy ways to convey these things. And I I just thought it was, yeah, so subtly stunning in a way that I think might get overlooked. Yeah. And might get pegged as like trying to be quirky or arty or whatever. But I thought it was incredibly relatable and I think that what I was intending to say and then lost track of is that Jalali manages to make something that I think is so relatable and yet there's also a specificity to Donia's experience of being a Afghani immigrant um, who's separated from her family and has this kind of community around her culturally that she's at odds with and yet also wants. And there's this exploration of that at the same time that there's a universality to what she's experiencing. And he doesn't compromise either of those things. And that's a really hard thing to do to make something that's relatable to potentially anyone. And yet doesn't compromise the specificity of point of view, particularly for a character 
that's representing a community of color. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with you. Like just so beautifully balanced. And so I go back to the word introspective because not only is the character that and the film that, but that's how it also made, made me feel throughout it. And just where the story goes and how it nets out is it nets out in such a lovely conclusion. And this is just the truest definition of a slice of life story. Absolutely. Um, like we're in for this particular section of this person's life. Yeah. And that's that's all we're meant to see. And it's it's so beautiful. And it leaves you with just, I don't know, just like a feeling of happiness that you got to peek into this person's life. Well, and there's the ending is so, you know, by all objective looks at it uneventful. Um, and we went with our friend Sanford and Alex and I was sitting beside Sanford and he gasped yeah. at the ending and he just said that was just beautiful yeah, or something. He said something to that effect. Um, and it is, it's a, it's a beautiful ending. And, and when you're aware that it's a slice of life film, you're also aware that it could end at any moment mm-hmm. and that you might, the ending might, catch you off guard because it doesn't have this giant narrative conflict and it's not following those traditional beats where you're like, Oh, we're in the denouement now. Mm. Um, Beautiful, beautiful ending. Yeah. And when Jeremy Allen White shows up, I'm like, Carmi, what are you doing here? (laughs) But uh, working on cars, but he, as soon as he's on screen, I think it was a really good choice because, yeah, like he's not the most famous person, but he is a recognizable person at this point. So there's immediately a little bit more heft because there's like, oh, this is like a, for all intents and purposes, a more famous person. And so you feel that he brings a little bit more weight to his presence on screen, but his character brings weight to the story and the impact his character has on Danya. And I, I so felt that and it wasn't in a distracting way. It was in a very additive to the already beautiful story kind of way. I feel like before we conclude, we should talk about the most flickable character in the history of film. Real piss boy. Yeah. Her therapist. Yeah. Who she, I mean, and again, this film does such subtle work of exploring some systems and the difficulty of navigating systems and the unfairness of systems. And as an immigrant, she has difficulty financially and then also just accessing a therapist and she, well, all she wants is sleep meds. <laughs> yeah. But she needs to get them through a therapist and like the hoops she has to jump through. And then he just sucks. Yeah. He's just such a shitty therapist that she needs to appease that she can get these pills that she wants. And again, the film isn't making any like big grand gestures about like the system of therapy or the American medical system, but it is at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. And I just hated that guy so much. Certainly didn't make me want to read white Fang. No, (laughs) no, he really didn't. (laughs) Yeah. He's a real, real piss boy. But I really like this. I'm so glad that we got out to see it. I'm so grateful that Metro brought it in. Highly recommend you check this out. How did it make you feel? It made me feel an empathetic loneliness. Yeah. How did it make you feel? Taken by its beautiful thoughtfulness about life. Okay, we got a big smackaroonie. Yeah. We really want to see all David Lynch films in the theater. (laughs) 
And Elliot COVID gate summer 2023 really put a dent in that when Metro was doing their land of Lynch series and we didn't get to see blue velvet or wild at heart, but we were super lucky that one of our favorite. And I mean, I think one of everybody's favorite, one of many people's favorite Lynch films was picked as a board pick um, for this month. And so we got to see Mulholland Drive in the theater. 2001 David Lynch film, drama, mystery, thriller. He both directed and wrote it. And it stars, again, a lot of people, but I'm going to highlight the key three. Naomi Watts as Betty, Laura Herring as Rita, and Justin Thoreau as Adam. Three babes. If this was a slot machine, you won the jackpot. Yeah, cherry, cherry, <laughs> cherry. <laughs> and pull that handle. <laughs> oh, the synopsis. After a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac. I don't know if I pronounced that right. She and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. What did you think of Mulholland Drive? Back on the Lynch train, baby. Um, the, so the board member from Metro who chose the film got up on stage and did a little preamble before the film. And he said something that I just fully followed in going into the movie where he said something along the lines of let the vibes take you instead of the logic. And I'm just like, that's a good way to go into this film. I'm just, I've seen it a few times. Saw it in the theater when I was 11 when it came out. Did you really? No, I didn't. Oh my goodness. I was like, <laughs> what? Your parents took you to this? That's fucked. No, I didn't see it. Um, but it made for such a fresh way to watch this film that I hadn't in the past. Cause with Lynch's work, I think that as human beings, we want to make sense of what we're watching and have explanations and get a full understanding of what is going on. And Lynch doesn't work that way. And yeah. I love that. And he doesn't work that way for the audience or for film critics or even for his actors. I, you know, echoing, what I think was such a great thing for that board member to say before people experienced the film, either for their second, third, fourth, fifth time, or for the first time. Um, there's a film critic with the last name Herring. I didn't get the first name because I'm a bad researcher who was speaking about like how this movie shifts for them every time they watch it and said, quote, you want to get it, but I don't think it's a movie to be gotten. It's achieved its goal. If it makes you ask questions. Yeah. So like they they were speaking about how like the first time they watched it, they thought it was about this. And then the second time they thought it was about this and ultimately getting to a place of it's OK not to nail it down. And then I love I love this because it's just I think it speaks to the core of how David Lynch speaks about his work. Justin Thoreau said about the experience of making the film, quote, David welcomes questions, but he won't answer any of them. <laughs> and I love that, that he's like, yes, ask me questions. And it's not actually about asking him questions. It's about in asking him a question, you're asking yourself a question about how you're engaging, I guess, as an actor, how you're engaging with the characters and the work. If you're an audience member or a viewer, how you're engaging with the experience of watching it. And he wants to leave that to you to sit with the question and not necessarily need an answer for it. And one of the most interesting things about seeing this film this time is that um, one of our friends, Alex, who we had gone to Fremont with and the trailer for Mulholland Drive came on when we were there and we said, oh, we're going to this tomorrow if you want to join us. And then he did. He just, we didn't know he was coming. He just showed up. We're like, hey, yes. Exciting. Sit with us. 
but he hadn't ever seen anything by David Lynch mm-hmm. ever. And I do think that Mulholland Drive is often what people will suggest for a first Lynch film. And yet I, ne- and it was, I think it was the first thing I ever saw by David. No, no, no. That was Elephant Man. But the first thing I ever knowingly saw by David Lynch where I like knew who he was mm. and nothing made me realize or, or be reminded of how surreal and abstract and strange and unknowable. But f- uh, the thing about all of that is Lynch is so feelable. Yeah. But nothing reminded me of all of that as much as sitting beside someone who has never engaged with a Lynch film. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, this is weirder than I remember (laughs) because I'm and I mean, you say this a lot. We're all in on Lynch. Yeah. And we know what he's all about. And so we're prepared for like. That experience of just letting his images always the sound design. And like the narrative that's not meant to be cracked just wash over us but i was like oh right this person that we're with has never experienced that before and it's a very strange thing to experience the first time you're like i don't know what that was yeah yeah i spent some time thinking about this of just like so many lynch fans when thinking about what's the most quote-unquote accessible piece of his work that can bring you into the lynchian fold and they would say it's this and i don't necessarily disagree i feel like twin peaks is probably more appropriate but but it's a commitment <laughs> yeah like as a tv show with multiple episodes and a lot of time but i think for a movie i think this is good you also brought up wild at heart i also think that that is a bit of an a closer ease in but i think that this is lynch's bridge between yes his earlier films and then his most recent work, both vibes wise and what he's choosing to explore with his again, quote unquote narrative. Yeah. I think the reason that many people might suggest this is like a first Lynch film is because perhaps if you watch elephant man or even wild at heart, you might not truly get how weird Lynch is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really think you can go wrong unless maybe you start with Dune, which we've never seen. But to get to the experience of watching this film that we've seen a handful of times, not a lot, but but we've seen more than once on the big screen. Man, this film was meant to be seen on a big screen. Yeah, it was incredible. I I really like this film a lot. I liked it even more when you could kind of just drown in it because of the sound is so big and the screen is so big and we sat quite close to the front. Um, and I knew I was excited for it, but man, seeing that winky winky's diner scene on the big screen, like one of the most horrifying non horror scenes in cinema. The only other thing that I, like I would love to get to watch all of twin peaks in the (laughs) twin peaks in the movie theater and, see that scene of Bob coming over the couch. Oh, yep. that would just kill me yep. psychically. But yeah, it is one of the creepiest moments in all of film. It gives me the same Wiggins as that one sequence in parasites. And yeah, the, <laughs> the Bob sequence in twin peaks. It also has one of my favorite moments 
that just makes me laugh. Comedy moments. Yeah. There's a boardroom meeting that happens in this movie and the chaos that ensues in it, it just floors me. I think it's so funny. And then amidst all of it, Justin Theroux is like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so he's calling out the absurdity of it all. I just, I so love that. I love that amidst all of this dreaminess and abstraction that Lynch still has a funny bone. Oh, yeah. I know all of his films have that. I mean, we only haven't seen Dune and Straight Story. We've seen everything else. But from what we've seen, everything always has that. I don't know. He just he works so well in juxtaposition. In like putting these two things that are on the extreme end of something together and he does melodrama so well in service of something that isn't melodramatic. Mm. And I just don't know who else has such a pulse on that. Like who, who else, if you showed a clip from like Mahone drive or twin peaks, that's just one of the like high melodrama moments. Somebody might think it's from a soap opera. Oh yeah. But yet when you put it in the context of like this incredibly, discomforting sound design and these images that just wiggle into you and you can't really explain why like he just has such a lock on nightmare logic but also dream yeah. logic and Mulholland drives just such a beautiful job of playing both in dream logic and nightmare logic yeah like the the most joyous happiest thing triumphant thing can be happening on screen yet can be overshadowed by dread. Yeah. Like I'm thinking, I don't want to get too into detail, but they're near the end of Twin Peaks, The Return. There is this moment where everything seems to just be, everything's coalescing and it feels so good. And you're seeing so many of these characters return, but there's an overlay on the screen that you're like, what's happening? Yeah. Like something is wrong. So this is not what it seems. And that is what Lynch is a master of, of things are not what they seem. I read a, um, a review on Letterboxd. I can't remember if it was somebody that I follow or if I just saw it that said about Mulholland Drive. And I think there is kind of a generally understood meaning to it that I do agree with. And that doesn't really matter. But somebody said, you know, Lynch has been told for years, like, we just want to understand your films. And they felt like this was him saying, like, oh, you want to know the truth? <laughs> um, and that, you know, often people have interpreted, like, the last 30 minutes of this film as reality. Mm -hmm. And the first part of it is, like, a dream or mm -hmm. mixing of dream and nightmare. And it's not fun. That last 30 minutes is not fun. And they say, they feel like, this review said they felt like it was him being, like, you, you're getting what you want. How do you like it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this film itself just has such a, like as a whole, has such a perfect blend of mystery, romance, love, nightmare, dream. Like, it's just perfect. Yeah. Even though I don't think I've given it a five out of five yet because I don't think I've had that perfect moment with it, but I know it's coming. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you have a favorite Lynch film as it stands right now? Probably Eraserhead. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and I love Twin Peaks. We're rewatching Twin Peaks right now and getting to see those connections. I, I really do feel like Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks are playing in the same sandbox. And 
I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this until I was looking stuff up about the film. Mulholland Drive was actually going to be a TV show. Interesting. And the a lot of what's in the film was shot for a pilot. So like a pilot was made um, and it was for ABC mm. and then they hated it and they didn't want it. So, well, ABC would be in a very different place in 2001 than they, than they were, were at they the did. beginning of the 90s. Yeah. And so then Lynch went back and reworked it as a film. But knowing that, I'm like, oh, and I, I didn't know that when we rewatched it this time. And I was feeling like there was a lot of Twin Peaksy elements. And, and some people say, well, maybe that's why, you know, we've got a lot of like little asides with characters that we never really come back to. But thinking about it as originally being a pilot, those probably would be characters that would be built on throughout a series. Totally. Um, apparently, when David Lynch showed his pilot to the folks at ABC, they didn't like that it was nonlinear. They thought Naomi Watts and um, Laura Herring were too old to be the leads. They didn't like their age. Um, they didn't like that people were smoking, and they didn't like that there was a close-up on dog poop. ABC can kick rocks, man. And it, yeah, I... It, it sounds like that was a shitty experience for David Lynch and knowing what we know about how season two, like how creative control was wrested away from him. I think he didn't want to push if they didn't like it. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a couple good quotes from him where he talked about how he really likes making TV and he hasn't done a lot of it. Right. I mean, it's so great that his most recent work is, is the return because I think it's phenomenal. And he's doing something for Netflix, right? Supposedly. Yes. I'd love that. Uh, but he said about working in the medium of TV, quote, I'm a sucker for a continuing story. Theoretically, you get a very deep story and you can go so deep and open the world so beautifully, but it takes time to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but then in speaking about taking what was going to be a TV series and turning it into a film, I feel like this is just you got to hear it in David Lynch's voice, but I'm not going to try and pretend <laughs> to be him. He said, one night I sat down, the ideas came in and it was a most beautiful experience. Everything was seen from a different angle. Now looking back, I see that the film always wanted to be this way. It just took this strange beginning to cause it to be what it is. Hmm. But he has said like the cut he had to give ABC wasn't even what he would want as a pilot, but he was told it had to be like a certain timestamp and this and that. And he, Apparently, there's at least 300 copies out there in the world, and he hates it. He said, all I know is I loved making it. ABC hated it, and I don't like the cut I turned in. <laughs> so, you know. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. <laughs> I just, but I do find that really fascinating, knowing that it was originally going to be a series. And I think it would have been incredible, but yeah, I think it's I think also... It I think it would have worked really well. But it's incredible as a film, and... You know, people have talked about this as being in the same um, cinematic lineage as Robert, Robert Altman's Three Women and Ingmar Bergman's Persona. And there's a shot in here that I'm like, oh, he's homaging Persona. And I never saw that because this is my first time watching it since seeing Persona. Yeah. And I love all three of those films. Mm -hmm. um, I have a quote from a film reviewer, Michael Wilmington, that I just think is beautiful to like kind of cap the conversation. Um, so he said, quote, everything in the film is a nightmare. It's a portrayal of the Hollywood golden dream turning rancid, curdling into a poisonous stew of hatred, envy, sleazy, compromise, and soul-killing failure. This is the underbelly of our glamorous fantasies and the area Lynch shows here is realistically portrayed. Jesus, those are a lot of really good words. Yeah, I was like, whoo, I love that 
the golden dream turning rancid and curdling into a poisonous stew. I think yeah. that's that's sick. That's good words, that, Michael. That's fucking so metal. I can't even. <laughs> that's so good. I want to be a metal film reviewer. <laughs> but I just, I don't know. This film is is something to experience. It's stunning and it's hollowing and it's scary and it's beautiful. And also they were all wrong about the two leads. Both Naomi Watts and, sorry, what's the actress who plays Rita? I'm so Laura bad. Herring. Laura Herring. They're both gorgeous, but like, God damn, they command the screen with their performances. Everybody is incredible in this movie. It's so good. Yeah, and all time great. I'm so grateful for having seen it in the theater. It's going to be a five. It, it, it's going to get there. Like you said, we're going to watch it one time and be like, of course. I feel like it was just the audience was really restless and I had to put in my concert earplugs to. I also had to leave like halfway through to yeah, repark the car. A, <laughs> we parked in a two hour parking zone, but the movie's two hours and 30 minutes. So <laughs> that kind of sucked. But yeah. It's amazing. Um, how does Mulholland Drive make you feel? Swept up in the dreamy dreaminess of it all. How does it make you feel? It always makes me laugh when we've essentially said not just the same thing, but in the same words. <laughs> Um, it makes me feel swept up in the dreamy nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Nice. Okay, take us to our first mystery pick of the week, our only mystery pick of the week. Yeah, nice. So I've had this one on my mind for a little bit, and it came to Criterion, and I was like, great, and then went to watch it, and it was gone. So I had to dig it up somewhere else. But we threw on the 1998 horror mystery sci-fi film The Faculty. It's directed by Robert Rodriguez, written by David Wechter, Bruce Kimmel, and Kevin Williamson, who also wrote and created the Scream films. It stars, okay, Jordana Brewster as Delilah, Clea Duvall as Stokely Stokes Mitchell, Laura Harris as Mary Beth, Josh Hartnett as Zeke, Sean Hat- Hatozi as Stan, Elijah Wood as Casey, and there's a bunch of other big people that show up in this. Yeah, I think we don't need to say their name, like their character names, but Salma Hayek, Famke Jansen, Piper Laurie, Robert Patrick, Usher, John Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Like, holy moly, this, I didn't really know anything about this movie, and then as people kept coming on screen, I'm like, what the heck? There's also two people credited as fuck you boy and fuck you girl. <laughs> yep. It's um, that kind of movie. Yeah. Um, but our, our big cheese in this is Casey Connor, who's played by Elijah Wood. And the synopsis is when Casey Connor, Harrington High School's newspaper photographer, witnesses the murder of a nurse and sees her alive again, he decides to investigate the bizarre happenings. Not a great synopsis. No. Um, what'd you think? This is one of those movies that is both objectively not good and also objectively very good. Yeah. I had so much fun watching this. Yeah. Like it. I'm not going to say this as well as somebody I saw on the Internet said it. So I'm just going to quote them. A film critic named Aaliyah Whiteley, who was speaking about the film more recently as like a film that's been reevaluated. Um, said the faculty is very definitely a big mess of a movie, but if you love all things sci-fi, it is a good mess. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where 
I wouldn't expect people who don't like horror and don't like sci-fi to like this at all. Yeah. Objectively, it's not a good movie. But if you are such a genre fan... It's a very good movie. Yeah. It's so funny because I, I picked this because I've wanted to watch it for a long time. Like I remember seeing trailers for it on VHS tapes for movies I rewatched tons of times. So I saw this trailer a lot and I'm like, I really want to watch that. But I, I never thought to rent it or anything. And then I, Criterion adding it and also just you going back to work. So you're back in school. <laughs> you're part of the faculty. I am part of the faculty. Um. Yeah, it was. I was so excited to finally dive into this. And then, yeah, not realizing that Kevin Williamson had a hand in it, who, I mean, Scream is one of my favorite movies of all time. And then Robert Rodriguez as the director. I feel like Robert, Robert Rodriguez in, you know, not that I know everything that he's done, but I was a big fan of Sin City back in the day. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I'd feel about it now. I haven't seen it in like over a decade. I like to watch it. But I've seen it so many times. I'd love to. I am very excited for the day (laughs) we we watch it and unpack it We press play on that and it's all going to come rushing back because I have probably seen that film over 50 times. Yeah. I got some good stories around that movie too. Yeah. Um, We should cover it soon. But Robert Rodriguez has like a bit of a camp sensibility. Like he has a bit of a like wink wink. And so knowing that he directed it and then... You know, Kevin Williamson has that too, right? Like Scream is all about making fun of the genre and unpacking the genre while also being the genre. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this film is doing that as well, but in more sci-fi horror than slasher horror. Yeah. And knowing that, having that wink wink of like, we're all in on the joke, we're all in on the fact that we're playing with tropes. It's really fun. Like as soon as you told me Robert Rodriguez was the director when we were a little bit into it, it kind of made me view it differently. Mm. Um, but also just the cast is unreal. Like it's, it's no joke except one person in it who is a super joke, but I don't want to talk about him. No. Um, I have such a crush on Elijah Wood. I have such a crush on Clea Duvall. So it, I love seeing them when they're like itty bitty babies. Just like, I mean, uh, Clea Duvall did a lot when she was younger. Um, I feel like I haven't seen Elijah Wood as a little baby very often, but it warmed my heart so much as soon as Elijah was on screen because your reaction was just so. <laughs> what did I adorable. do? You're just oh, Elijah, <laughs> <laughs> and like it's so funny because I love when I can. I I haven't really known Elijah Wood until he was older, mm-hmm. and I have such a crush on him as he is right now. But then watching this movie and it came out when? 98. 98. If I had seen this in 1998, eight-year-old me would have had a crush on Casey. That would have been the character I had a crush on. Yeah. And so I love that. I love that like the age appropriate version of Elijah Wood I have a crush on now. But I know that when that version would have been age appropriate to crush on, I would have crushed on him. Obviously me now, I'm not like little baby Elijah Wood in his (laughs) oversized polo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But... Yeah, he yeah. he's so such a little cutie in this. I am with you. I also I really love Elijah Wood. <laughs> very early on in our podcast, we talked about like we got Twitter because Elijah Wood was very active on Twitter, and we're like we really want to connect with Elijah Wood. Yeah, we have a pinned tweet on our Twitter that we literally never use. We have Twitter. We have Threads. We don't use them. Um, that just says we want Elijah Wood to be on our podcast <laughs> one day, baby. Yeah. Um, I just also love, uh, yeah, the cat, like just as more people, it's just like, 
Usher, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Jon Stewart? It's, it was nuts. But I also, I'm so in love with like the 90s heart throbbiness that is Josh Hartnett in this. And like they even gave him a fucking bad haircut. No, and I'm I sure have... and I'm sure they were like it didn't matter. Like everyone was on full babe, babe alert. Babe, it did matter. He cut his own hair and they were pissed at him. He did it. He did it. And everybody was so mad. And he did it because he said he felt like the haircut that he usually had or that they wanted him to have wasn't like accurate to the character and didn't look like a teenager. So he just cut his hair like a total doink because he felt like that was like true to this like punky don't give a fuck character that he would just have a haircut like that. So no, um, Josh Hartnett picked that haircut. Yeah, he, it's, he had a method haircut. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, All right. Fun trivia for I you. I don't know, but I, I don't. It's iconic. It's a tragedy. Like it's I, iconic. I, I don't think that that deterred any no, girls it's not like from they were swooning like, no. at all. It's not like the studio was like, well, then you're not in the film. They were like, I guess we are stuck with your dumb haircut. And I just feel like, I, I don't know. I feel like the version of that 90s heartthrobbiness, like I feel like that was the last era of that before we started shifting into crappy Netflix movies and stuff like that. Like I just don't... Like the only one I can think of is like Timothy Chalamet, but he's like a pretty weird, spindly little boy. He's kind of like a, I mean, not that I like to talk about Johnny Depp, but I feel like he's got that appeal that like a young Johnny Depp had where it's like, he's a weirdo. Yeah. And that makes him cool. I I mean, he is a very handsome man, but. I feel like the, the other thing that we have currently is just like all the Marvel stuff, but it's all like middle aged rip dudes. I don't know. Chris Evans just married a 26-year-old, so. That's true. Yeah. And he's 40-something. Not judging too much. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) Some some other things here. When this film does practical work, it's actually really good. It's actually, like, quite, like, there was a couple moments where I was like, oh. Well, it's because we got our homeboy, Greg Nicotero. Greg Nicotero. You know, we spent a lot of time watching The Talking Dead. We watched Walking Dead and And always watched watched The the Talking Talking Dead. Dead. Yeah. Until we gave up on both. We gave up on The Talking Dead first and then we gave up on The Walking Dead. But we're pretty familiar with Greg Nicotero. For a while, like, we really liked anybody involved in The Walking Dead. Um, And the practical work here is really good. When it goes CGI, it's just a bit of a shame. It's just a product of its time. Absolutely. Like, CGI was cool and amazing and... It looks a little Spy Kids. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's a reason for that. But when it goes practical, you're totally right. I'm just like, oh, man, this is working for me. This is selling it. This is awesome. There's a couple gross things about it. Um, So, you know, Cleo Duvall is very publicly queer now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you see her in things, and she was in But I'm a Cheerleader, right? So when you see her in things, you're like, oh, I'm hoping she's playing a queer character. And at first it seems like Stokely is a queer character, but then she's a loner who pretends that she's gay so everyone will hate her. And that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a bummer. And then also, it was actually um, our Letterboxd uh, bestie, Emily Rugburn, posted this on their review. And I'm really thankful for it because I haven't really looked at the cover and I wouldn't have thought of this, but Usher was featured very prominently in all yeah. the promotional materials. Yeah, and, that's... and yet isn't really in the film. And that's yeah. pretty messed up. To yeah. like... Because it's a very white cast. Um, Jordana Brewster is not white. Um, 
And there even is a line in the film where she mentions that. But I think many people would not be noticing that she's a person of color. So it's really gross to take a person of color who's barely in the film and then feature them as if they're going to be in the film prominently. Um, So yeah, some real bummers in terms of some of the content. Real bummer in how it was marketed. Real bummer who produced it. Real bummer that there's one actor in it. Very barely in it, but isn't it at the very beginning? And then I was like, oh, I hope this person is not a key character because I don't want to watch them. For my money, I'm going to say Clea Duvall's character is bisexual. Yeah. Because there is a great line where like the baddie says, we don't even know if she's gay or straight. And I'm like, yeah, maybe she's both. <laughs> like, Yeah. But the film definitely doesn't suggest that. She likes the bottle, not the label. Yeah. What's yeah. that from? Stress Creek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> like I've heard that. You didn't make that up. I will say, though, I, I do want to make sure that we capture this is that sometimes subtitles do real funny things oh yeah and they made a reference to jennifer love hewitt but the subtitle read jennifer love you <laughs> jennifer love you l-e-v-i-e-u-x <laughs> like the characters were talking about finding jennifer love hewitt attractive but the subtitle said it was jennifer jennifer love you um one of the last things i'll say is that when we were watching this we actually said out loud to each other this seems like it was a lot of fun to make. Yeah. And this is a quote from Clea Duvall. Quote, making the film was so much fun. It was mostly night shoots. It was like we were in this alternate alternate universe working all night long and making this fun sci-fi horror movie. I loved it. So that's beautiful to hear. I mean, there's something really heartwarming when you're watching something that you feel like everybody was just having a blast on. Yeah. Even if it, as that reviewer said, is a big mess. It's a really fun, really good big mess. Yeah, I'd revisit it semi-often. I agree. Yeah. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel here for the high school silliness and the stacked cast. Yeah. You? Just a happy horror, good time silliness. All right. Last movie of the week. Uh, We watched the movie Theater Camp. It recently came on Disney Plus. We really wanted to see it when it was in theaters and just didn't manage to find a time to. Um, it's listed as a comedy only, which is surprising to me that it's not listed as comedy musical. Or like mockumentary. Yeah. Strange. Um, but it's directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. And it was written by Lieberman, Gordon, and Noah Galvin. And then it's based on a story by those three and Ben Platt. So it was originally a 30-minute short film. Um, and the story was concepted by those four people. It stars most of the people I just mentioned. Ben Platt as Amos, Molly as Rebecca Diane, <laughs> most annoying name ever. Noah Galvin as Glenn, Jimmy Tatro as Troy, and Ayo Edabiri as Janet. And there's many other people as well, but those are the people I'm going to highlight. A lot of ensemble casts this week. Mm-hmm. Synopsis. The eccentric staff of a rundown theater camp in upstate New York must band together with the beloved founder's broy son to keep the camp afloat. <laughs> broy. It's a really the most appropriate description for him. Yeah. What did you think of theater camp? I really wanted to see this when it came out in the theater. Uh, I remember hearing really good things about it when it premiered at Sundance, I think it was. And I was really looking forward to it. And we just missed it. Yeah. And then it came on Disney Plus and we're like, okay, okay, Disney, we will watch it. We'll watch it. This was so much fun. 
we especially just like coming off of watching Little Shop of Horrors and going to see Six, we're in a very musical theater place right now. So this is just slotting in right at the perfect time. I agree. And I love so many of I I love that Ben Platt, that Ben Platt is just taking the piss. I love that we're seeing so many people from the bear lately. Yeah. (laughs) It's like crazy. Like almost the whole main cast of season two was in, has been in movies we've seen in the past month. I also, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, but I really like a mockumentary, but I don't truly feel like The Office, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec are really mockumentaries. I feel like they're kind of using the idea of a mockumentary stylistically without actually being mockumentaries. Like they don't play like a doc. Whereas Mm. something like this or like American Vandal that like literally plays like someone made a documentary, but we know it's fiction. I really love. Yeah. Good shout out to American Vandal because the bro-y son is well, yeah, I was from like, American Vandal. Honestly, it gave me similar vibes to American Vandal. And I fucking loved that show. Both seasons of it. So good. I would love to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> like I thought it was so funny. I love a satire. Like it was American Vandal, especially the first season, coming off the heels of like the popularity of like making a murderer and all the particularly making a murderer. But like Netflix, true crime docs were so popular at the time. And American Vandal was pitch perfect in creating a doc that was actually really like you wanted to know who the like, what was he called? Uh, I Dick Bandit? No, something like that. But wanting to know who it was. And like going down these roads that like we're so familiar with narratively from like these legitimate true crime docs. And that's what I feel like something like The Office doesn't really do. Like they're, it's, you're just like, why? Who's even making this documentary and why are they even there? Whereas Theater Camp establishes at the very like we were five minutes in and I said, is this a mockumentary? And you were like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden it's like there's a title card that says we set out to make a documentary about um And like there's a clarity to if this was a real documentary, why would people be making it? What's interesting about the subject matter? How are the people involved in the like the documentary people feel like agents within the film, even though we never see them? Whereas that's not really there in like the NBC shows. Yeah. And there's yeah, there's just a point like that a documentary is trying to make like it's whereas they're using the lens of a documentary in shows like The Office and Parks and Rec, but it's not to a larger point. But it's not the medium of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's So anyway, all of that to say I really like mockumentaries and yeah. I thought this did it really well. Um, and it is funny. Yeah. I laughed a lot. The The humor in it is just spot on with the shit that we really like and the music that's written for it is also phenomenal it's catchy and stupid and there's I, I i don't know the the boy's name but uh one of the actors in it is in john mulaney and the sack lunch bunch 
And this this movie just made me want to rewatch a bunch of shit that I really like. Sacklodge yeah. Bunch is so funny. It is very it's funny. So good. Yeah, I I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed the aesthetic of it that it makes it feel like a 1970s early 80s summer camp but, but it, it's not it's not at all troy is like a vlogger <laughs> yeah and there's like influencers and shit um yeah I, and i feel like if you are a theater kid or a theater head that you would absolutely adore this oh yeah i mean i haven't often liked ben platt there's this weird like he annoys me, but there's no active reason why, and that's not necessarily fair to him. Because they de-aged him and Dear Evan Hansen. Probably, and, and you know really what? Weird. We had a really bad experience trying to see Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> we we just we just have it out for Dear Evan Hansen. Well, we did. We did. We went to go see it at like uh, the Jubilee, which is like one of the big theaters in Edmonton, and the audio wouldn't work, and it would make make this terrible sound, and they spent like I, I want to say at least half an hour trying to restart it they would get like two minutes into a song and then the like sound would crash again mm-hmm. um and so we never finished seeing it and like Ben Blatt was not in it at all yeah. but he's just synonymous with your Evan Hansen and then the movie looked so dumb and he's like way too old to be playing a yeah. high school kid and they desperately tried to make him look like a so high school kid. Not, it's not fair to him that I find him annoying. I, I also like the, the story of Dear Evan Hansen. I really don't like. I know. I'm like, I thought it was something different. And then like when the audio crashed, I was like, I'm fine to go. And yeah. I don't ever need to see the yeah. ending. Like this is kind of yucky. But and- again, none of that is Ben Platt's <laughs> fault. <laughs> but for some reason, he's always bugged me. He just kind of irked oh. me. And I liked him in this because he seemed willing to make fun of that part of himself. I blame everything I don't like on Ben Platt. <laughs> me too. <laughs> He's the problem. Um, well, this is actually really funny because when we were out with our friend Sanford and Alex last week, I don't even know how it came up. Maybe it was because they had a trailer for theater camp at the theater. I don't know. Mm. But Sanford mentioned, he's like, didn't Ben Platt marry the other dear Evan Hansen? And I was like, what are you even talking about? And I looked it up at the time and I confirmed that that was true. So Ben Platt is in a relationship with Noah Galvin, like they're married, who plays Glenn. And Glenn was his successor to play Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. So they both played Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. So there's a lot of Dear Evan Hansen going on. Jesus Christ. Anyway, back to theater camp. I liked Ben Platt in it. I really did too. This went a long way to redeeming his image in my mind. Yeah. I'm still going to blame everything that goes wrong in my life on Ben Platt. But... He was great in this. He was really good. And like the faculty, this felt like it must have just been really fun to make. And, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing that the key writers and actors and directors like concepted the story together, made a short film on it together. A lot of them have known each other for a really long time. It feels like it was just a blast. Um, And like you said, it feels like if you're a theater kid, you'd feel seen by it, but in a way that kind of lets you laugh at yourself. Yeah. We weren't theater kids. No. I was a, or summer camp kids, I don't think. No. Like, so neither of those things. And summer camp kids are like also a type of kid. Yeah. Um, but I work at a school with a lot of theater kids. They mm-hmm. just cast our big musical this week and a student who I have taught a lot and I think is wonderful got cast in a lead role and you know, it's the end of the day and I just hear like squealing in the hallway 
And it's because she told all of her friends that she got that role and they're all just like screeching with glee. Mm. And then they come running in to tell me and I'm like, yeah, theater kids. Yeah. You got to love them, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm glad I'm not one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not a drama teacher. Or a summer camp kid. Or a summer camp counselor. Ugh. Yeah. Plus, high chance of being murdered by a slasher. Yeah. Um, I loved a lot of the performances in this. And there was one character, the I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but it was the character who played, uh, who was the choreographer. Mm-hmm. But he was Mugatu's assistant in Zoolander. So Will Ferrell's assistant. <laughs> okay. I don't remember Zoolander very well. And, I don't like it. And he was hilarious in that. I'm like, I, I haven't seen you in years and years, but I'm happy that you're here. Yeah, all the supporting roles in this were were very, very good. A lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I feel like this is one that if you saw it with the right audience, it would have been so fun to see it with an audience. But if you saw it with the wrong audience, it would have really sucked. Yeah, like if you were there night one. Like it's like a Barbie situation, yeah. you know? Um, so I am glad we watched it at home personally. Yeah. I thought it was really funny. I think it's worth checking out. I feel like there's... Certain people who would really not like it. Like if you really hate theater kids. This is like. Self-effacing, but also in a loving way. Yeah. But I thought it was pretty great. I thought so too. How did it make you feel? Just silly, fun, joy. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a warm humor. Like it just made me feel good. Warm. Warm. Yeah, should we talk about dads? Dads of the week. The dads of the week. Should we make a little jingle for it? Yeah. Eventually. We'll get there. Um, My bad dad nominee is Johnny from The Killing. You're going to have to remind me who exactly Johnny is. He's there's the, a lot of characters. He's the ringleader. He's the big cheese. Oh, like cheese. The, the one at the end. Yeah. Okay. He's the big cheese. He just thinks he's hot shit. And I don't like his attitude. I don't like how he talks to his girlfriend. I don't like how everybody just thinks he is hot shit. <laughs> um, I, I I wouldn't want him as a dad. I think that he's too big for his britches. And he can stick it. Okay, okay. I picked um, Dr. Anthony from Fremont. That is also a very good choice. He sucks. <laughs> he's, like, first of all, he's a bad therapist. Blows ass. Like he's got one of those like there's a really hypocritical moment with him where he's like, you're not allowed to do things this way, but I guess we'll allow it. (laughs) He also keeps equating Donya's story of being a immigrant, being disconnected from her family, having people back in Afghanistan see her as a traitor. He keeps equating it to White Fang. Which is hilarious within the context of the film when you know that the film is making fun of that. But it's very gross when you take him as a therapist. I mean, you can keep going, but you don't need to say any more to convince me. <laughs> I'm just The last thing I'm just going to say is that as a therapist, and you and I talk a lot on the show about the value of therapy and how I mean, therapy, I wish, was way more accessible and affordable to people because I think it's really helpful and really important when you can connect with the right therapist. But it's way too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a tendency to require her to talk about her trauma in a way where like he just seems interested in it. It's just like, I want to know the details about shitty things that happened to you. 
And that is really gross. And he's just a really bad therapist. And he also keeps putting his fingers together in a gross way. And when he tries to open a fucking fortune cookie, I want to die. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Dr. Anthony, don't Don't be be our our dad. dad. Who's your red dad? I picked Troy from theater camp. (laughs) The dick bandit himself. I don't know if that was the name. I really want to know. I'll look it up. Um, Rad dad. Yeah. Go on. I mean, okay. I can't spoil the film, but what I'll say is yes, he's, he's a bro, but even as a bro from the start of the film, he's a loving bro. Yeah. Like he's, He's a doofus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's never mean. And even when he's like, whoa, these people are weird. It's not in a like, and I'm not, and fuck you guys. It's more of a just like, oh, you're kind of weird, and I don't (laughs) know what to do. Also, this has nothing to to do with him being rad dad. But there's a moment where an insult is shouted out him. That is one (laughs) of the funniest insults I've ever heard on film ever. And I won't spoil it because it's so good. Um But I just think like, so he plays this doofus character who's out of his depth, but his heart is always in the right place. And as the film goes on, he's like going through this journey of becoming more accountable and becoming more responsible and learning to care about things other than himself and people other than himself and like apologizing when he messes up and trying to work with other people there's even just this like beautiful moment where he like asks somebody who everybody is not very kind to, to like eat lunch with him. And part of it is like, he wants advice, but another part is like, nobody's hanging out with you. And he sees what other people who are far more self-involved can't see and lifts those people up. And, Mm -hmm. and then is, and is so proud of them Mm -hmm. and doesn't like take on their successes as his own. And I think that's really beautiful. Like I think he's a doofusy rad dad, (laughs) but he is a rad dad. Yeah. I think that's that's really well put and really well thought out. I like that. I uh, I picked Casey Connor from the faculty. Elijah. Okay. All right. Um I mean Homeboy is the hero and he is there to live his truth and speak his truth no matter how many people want to put him down. He goes after what is right. And he tries to express himself to other people about what is right. And not in a demeaning way, not in a cruel way, but in a seeking of understanding. And I think that there is an element of patience in that, which I do appreciate. That he wants you to understand, but he's willing to let you get there on your own. And he just seems like a a really good person that is willing to sacrifice himself for you and for the group of people that he cares about yeah i mean i I like troy better (laughs) i think that troy is more interesting a more well thought out rad dad and like uh, a underdog for rad dad i agree i think you know when i said it and you were like okay go on and then when I explained it, you were like, yeah. Yeah. By the end, I was convinced. Totally. Plus, he has like an I am Knuff sweater that doesn't say I am Knuff on it. I thought that too. And I'm like, man, you were in before. And like, honestly, he seems like he would be the kind of guy who would wear an actual I am Knuff sweater. Oh, totally. <laughs> He'd be really seen by the Ken storyline in Barbie. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Troy is definitely Ken in his sweater waving at the, yeah. end, at the end of that movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Troy from Theater Camp. Be your dad. dad. Rad Rec Time. Um, I can't believe we slept on this for so long, but we are very fortunate in Edmonton to have one of the last video stores um, and it's horror themed. Um, there is a store called The Lobby, which sells and rents uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, VHSs. Yeah, I think they got some of those too. Pretty cool. Um, and they, their biggest collection is horror, although they have other stuff. And we've been hearing about it forever and people love it. But I mean, it's pretty far away from us. And, you know, we don't rent movies all that often. But we decided to pop in and like see what it was all about. We've been wanting to do it forever. And it was just such a lovely experience. First of all, we found a movie that I've been literally searching for that's out of print. We have been searching for it for like 15 years. I cannot believe it. And it's probably garbage, but I have been searching for it for so much of my life. It's a movie I loved when I was a teen, like a preteen, like 13, 14. You hyped it up to me when we first started dating. You're like, this is the most oh, yeah. fucked up thing been ever. <laughs> it's probably not, but it was a formative horror film for me. And, you know, when HMV was still around, every HMV, like not exaggerating, every time we went to HMV, we would look for it. We go to a Sunrise Records. We look for it. We've tried to find it online. Like, you cannot get this film. It's called My Little Eye. It is probably awful. But we saw it, and you could, we could either rent it for $5 or buy it for 10 so we bought it for 10 And the coolest thing about it, the, the fellow who runs the lobby, Kevin Martin, the fellow who runs the lobby, owns the lobby. Uh, big Brother? Yeah, Big Brother fame. <laughs> um... He's so knowledgeable. Like when we brought my little eye up and I said, oh, I loved this when I was younger. And he was like, yeah, it's, I said, we haven't been able to find it. He says, yeah, it's out of print. And he said, it's probably terrible. And he's like, well, I liked it 12 years ago. And he remembered it. And we were talking on our way home because we were just like so jazzed of like being in this space with like horror movies playing on, on a TV, like a old school TV. Mm-hmm. And this person who's just like so excited about everything that's there but in a way that welcomes you into it and mm-hmm. doesn't talk over you or, or make you feel like you don't know anything. And it was just, I'm like, I get why everybody loves coming into this place. Yeah. And we got to make it a more regular thing. So Rad Rack is, if you happen to be lucky enough to have some kind of a video rental or selling store where you live, support it. Seek it out. Seek it out, support it, recommend it to other people. If like you want to rent a movie, try and be mindful of like renting it from there instead of from Apple. And like we we are really trying in our life to support local. So we wanted to buy Twin Peaks The Return and we looked at it on Amazon. And I said, and this is what pre- like per- precipitated us going to the lobby where I said, well, what if we saw if we could buy it from there instead? If he could like special order it in for us, because I would rather give him my money than give Amazon my money. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that, please do that. But I know that most places don't have video rental or if they do, it's like sunrise records. So the real rad wreck is if you're ever in Edmonton, go to the lobby. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly special place. It is a destination. It is so cool. And Kevin who owns and runs the place is just such a lovely human being. We've only had one interaction with him and already I'm like, I want to go back and talk to him more. Um, so yeah, the lobby. 
great ride rack. I can't wait to go back. Yes, agreed. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for me, you, and Jennifer LaVue this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie, and that was good, and my dad's dead. (laughs) I'm Elliot, and thank you, and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.